Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. All right, and we're live. Welcome, everybody. So today, what we're going to try and do is a bit different than the normal interviews and such. We'll get back to those, and I am going to start doing a, a series about my first trip coming up. That's all in the pipeline, and maybe even delving back into the Appalachian Trail for a few episodes just for just for fun, a little trip down memory lane. But today... I'm going to be answering the questions that I've been asked, which is uh, how I prepare for these big voyages. Uh, you know, nine months at sea, it's pretty tough to shop for two weeks uh, in, at home in the grocery store. We're going to talk about food, sales, engine, just basically anything and everything that, that sort of goes into it. Now, a little disclaimer, I am no expert on this subject, uh, although I have quite a bit of experience I've learned so many lessons the hard way and you know screwed so many things up and that's that's sort of where <laughs> the most of my experience comes from so take that as you will uh, but other than that we're just gonna get into it um, I've got a nice little list here and I'll try and, and get as much information from from the knowledge I've gained over the last bunch of years and you know this comes from a 30-day trip while I was training to sail around the world to you know, nine months at sea, and then finally prepping for what I thought was going to be a year-long trip trying to do sort of the figure eight and around the Americas. So um, yeah, we'll just sort of get into it. I'm going to start with food because that, that one's usually the hottest topic, and that's one I definitely have screwed up before. And then in this last voyage, I, I over-provisioned quite a bit. Now, when I consider food and trying to figure out what I'm going to need, the first thing I do is make list after list after list, constantly writing things down, not only what I'm going to get, but also what I have on the boat. So I have a constant tally of what I actually already have. It's pretty easy to double up, or in my experience, it's pretty easy to think you have something when you actually don't. When I consider you know, a, a long voyage, I, you know, normally you'd think, okay, well, I can just do three meals per day. How many days do I think I'm going to be out? But when you really are, are getting into long distance voyages and you're buying things in bulk, like dehydrated camping food in a 10 serving tin, well, if you say, you know, 10 servings, that's 10 meals you're looking at maybe getting 300 calories out of each of those meals. And so you have to actually get really into it and and look for having, you know, I like to have between 700 and 1,000 calories for a meal. Again, I'm on a boat with no heat. Um, that comes into play. You're actually going to be working on the boat, you know, doing sail changes and stuff. And, you know, when you're sitting around on a boat, it's pretty nice to be able to eat when you're hungry and not have to worry too much. So always making those lists, super, super important. When I consider what types of meals, um, I'm pretty much trying to balance between meals that are fun and, and have a good variety that might take a little more cooking, uh, i.e. boiling water or frying things in a pan, all that sort of stuff. Um, and also uh, perishables, you know, being able to have onions and potatoes and things like that to add to dishes 
those you definitely want to have, but you also really want to have those items that are super easy to prepare. You know, just add water to them. I have a little jet boil on my boat, which I use to quickly boil water for things like coffee or dehydrated food. And it's just, you know, it's basically affixed to a uh, cutting board, which then I can clamp onto the, the gimbaled stove. But, you know, those meals are super easy or little things that you can throw into the oven. That makes life really – because you can just throw that sucker in, forget about it, and then then come back and grab it later. Because when you're in, you know, it doesn't have to be a rough, terrible gale or anything like that. It can literally just be three or four foot steep chop that you're bashing into. You know, trying to boil water or do anything like that is just a pain. You want to be able to sort of get through those situations quickly, easily, and, and it's safer as well. You know, the less boiling water getting thrown around, the the better. So always want to sort of consider that. And then also, you know, snacks and things. Um, there's been plenty of trips where I've gone out and said, you know, I'm not going to take chocolate. I'm not going to take cookies, uh, all this sort of stuff. And I typically end up regretting it when I get out there. Um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where, before you leave on a trip, you, you you have all these noble intentions. But in reality, you know, if you really want to do something like that, I would say the best thing to do is just get a small amount so that you only have a little. So if you have no willpower, it's only going to last a day. But if you can, you can moderate yourself down to, you know, one or two candy bars per day for two weeks or, you know, however long you're going to be out there. So having those treats really do help, especially when you're up on watch and it's raining and it's cold and you don't have a lot of time to go down below. Having a little pocket full of something or other, you know, a few kind bars or things like that is is really, really nice. And those those sort of, uh, I mentioned kind bars because I had literally a thousand of those for the last trip. One of the greatest things I realized about them is they typically have around 200 calories or so each. And so that that really makes it easy to get your calorie count up very easily without any cooking. You can grab three or four of them, throw them in your pocket, and go up on deck. And, you know, if that's going to be your meal, then that's going to be your meal. So they come in handy quite a bit. I really, really like them. And, you know... You just have to sort of consider those. I, I guess the the last thing I always say when provisioning for food for a long trip is just bring more than you think you need, especially when it comes to the staples like oatmeal, rice, lentils, beans, you know, cans of food. You just want to have a nice backup of those in case something else, you know, I've, I've had it where I opened up a, a box of uh pancake mix and it had weevils in it those little tiny like maggots or worms and so that all had to get thrown out and every once in a while that sort of stuff can happen where all of a sudden you lose a big chunk especially if you take a lot of produce uh, and perishables on the boat sometimes those can go off you know and then all of a sudden you've lost a huge amount of your food so having that backup is good I actually had about six months worth of long life sort of doomsday prepper food, if you will. And that just comes in buckets. I also had a lot of dehydrated food from like Mountain House and stuff like that. That really, it's just nice to have. I didn't have to dive into it too much, but you know, the, the food isn't great. 
But if you're out there at sea for three months and you just start getting really hungry, then it's not going to taste so bad. I remember on my first voyage, by the time I was in the Pacific after, you know, five months at sea, some of the things that I would have never thought were going to taste good, most notably chicken-flavored rice, was delicious. I mean, I loved eating it because I was just starving, and, you know, that's what it sort of does to you. But having that backup is good. I typically have... I. Well, now I have about two months worth of sort of backup, super long life food on the boat because it's also really easy to store. Case of an emergency, who knows? I also keep a lot of MREs because those are super easy to eat. And it's basically a can of like Chef Boyardee sort of stuff, but it's in a pouch. You can just tear it off and suck the contents out and you're pretty much good to go. So. That's really what I do with food. The other the other tip I would say is don't try to provision in one trip to the grocery. Spread it out, depending on how long your trip is, spread it out over multiple days. Go in every day for a week straight and just get, you know, one shopping cart full and that that's going to ease the pain of how much it costs and it, it's an illusion, but if you go in there and drop $100 as opposed to dropping $600 in one trip, it'll feel a little bit better. Plus, it'll allow you more and more time to really get all the numbers right and get all the things that you want without forgetting anything. At least that's what I've found. So that's that's sort of my food thing. A uh, little side note, I guess, with fishing gear, I always keep a really tiny box with uh, one of those little plastic spools no fishing pole, just like a 50-pound test line, maybe 10 lures, extra hooks and leaders, and that all fits in this tiny little box. And I can fish every day, all day pretty much. And if I catch something, great. If I don't, it's no big deal. But it's super simple. It doesn't get in the way of anything. And yeah, I, I always have that because it's so nice. You catch a fish, if you're on a pretty strict you know, food rationing system, then you catch a fish that's just added added protein. You throw in a little rice that tastes great. Boom, there you go. So that's my little side note there. Uh, as far as I think next one is communications. So when I typically go offshore, and that, that means multiple day trip at least, going a couple hundred miles offshore, typically, you know, let's say Maine to the Caribbean or across the Atlantic or something like that. The communications that I like to have, I like to have a sat phone. I like to have a computer that I can download the weather using that sat phone. I have an AIS unit, the automatic identification system for avoiding collisions. I'll have a VHF. Uh, Typically, that's either with the uh, AIS or with like a little chart plotter or something. So it's built into the boat, has the VHF aerial, so it's going to have a much bigger range because the aerial is going to be up on the mast. And then I'll also have a, a spare handheld VHF in case you know I lose all my electrical systems for whatever reason. But those are pretty much the basics. You know, I'll I'll have uh, my iPhone or or something like that that has some sort of chart plotter on it, Navex or Navionics, I guess. Though I don't, I typically, well, we'll get into charts and all that navigation stuff in a minute, but 
those are sort of the the communication devices so I can talk to any ships. I can call back to the land if I need to. I typically don't worry about having an HF radio or, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember, SSB, yeah. Uh, they take a lot of power. The, the equipment's really expensive, and a sat phone is just super easy to use, and they're, they're relatively inexpensive these days. So those, those are really my communication devices. I suppose we'd throw the EPIRB in there as well, even though that's more of a safety safety gear sort of thing, but it is a way to communicate with uh, search and rescue. So that's definitely a big one to have. And, you know, on a on an extended voyage, I'll probably take a backup AIS, uh, maybe a backup computer, backup VHF. I mean, on the trip to go up through the Northwest Passage, I went through an electrical storm and it knocked out my VHF, my AIS, my Garmin InReach, oh, and that's another one, Garmin InReach, that, that little device is fantastic. If you want to be able to do texting to friends, family, all that sort of stuff, just sort of keep them in the loop and be able to update sort of social media from out there for people that might be tracking your, your position, it's inexpensive, it's super easy, they're very bulletproof. In that case of that electrical storm, it, it knocked it out, but it, it, it was a pretty old one. I had a backup as well of that. So the only thing that wasn't really completely knocked out was the sat phone when I went through that storm, but um, that one did sort of degrade on that trip to the point where I lost, I lost the ability to actually download weather for quite a number of weeks. So, so that's sort of my communication stuff, and... Definitely want to have that. It makes it easy, and that stuff's not too expensive. You know, uh, you can get an AIS unit for 500 bucks. VHFs are, are pretty inexpensive. The sat phone and the computers are probably going to be the, the most expensive. And the computers, you know, typically you wouldn't, you don't, you don't need any of that stuff in reality. And I, I do like to sort of plan on maybe having everything get knocked out by some electrical storm. You get hit by lightning, you're pretty much going to lose all that stuff anyway. But uh, we'll get into navigation. Because you, if you lose all your comms, then it's basically like going back to the 1970s again, which people were still sailing all over the world in the 1970s. So can be done. But that's that's my comms. Sat phone, computers, AIS, VHF, uh, Garmin InReach, and the in, uh, EPIRB. That is pretty much a solid way to communicate to anybody around you and then get back and communicate with uh, your home base. As far as the engine goes, you know, I, the first, the maiden voyage of, of Mighty Sparrow, my father and I took from Jupiter, Florida down to the British Virgin Islands. It's like 1,400 miles or 1,200 miles. And the engine basically sucked water in through the exhaust on day two and I did not know how to fix it I didn't have that big beautiful mechanical and electrical guide that everybody should have on their boat I forget the name of it but it's basically everybody's got it's huge and uh, so couldn't fix it and we just sailed on because you know we've got the sails that's what they're there for and it was kind of interesting you know to not have the engine. And, and again, when I ran out of fuel on the big trip, I didn't have the engine for, I think, the last two months or so of the trip, just about. And, you know, it's one of those things where 
you can get yourself into a little bit of trouble, that's for sure. Um, I felt like a sitting duck when some of the big ships were around crossing shipping lanes in, in little to no wind. Um, but as far as what I typically bring to make sure the engine will keep going, one is that, that big reference guide. I can't, can't say enough about that one. It is really nice to have. And you could just troubleshoot so many things. It's like having a, a mechanic sort of there with you. But as far as spare parts go, for a long offshore voyage, again, that's, that's sort of what I'm considering here, would be I'd have a, a spare alternator and a spare starter motor. Uh, I typically am going to have maybe five or six impellers for the raw water pump. I'll have three or four alternator belts. And I guess this is going to vary depending on your engine. I have an old 4108 uh, Perkins, but... Uh, plenty of oil filters, plenty of fuel filters, and typically enough oil to do maybe two oil changes if I needed to. And on that, on my boat, that's not much. You, you don't need to have like six gallons of, of oil. I think I can get away with just having one gallon uh, or so. And then I can do oil changes and things like that out there depending on either how much I'm running the engine or if you suck water in through your exhaust for some reason, then you got to blow it all out. Um, I typically have one injector, maybe two injectors just to be able to play with those if I need to. But again, these, these things, you know, if I were to sail down to the Caribbean, I would have these things less for just the initial trip down there, but more for, you know, if I'm going to be cruising for three or four months, I don't want to have to buy this stuff in some of these far funk places because one they might not have the right stuff and two it's probably going to be pretty expensive so those are those are typically the things and I always take a bunch of oil blankets so those those you put them underneath the engine they get all the oil out and one of the reasons I do that one they're cheap and two if you do have to change the oil out at sea it can become super messy and typically that oil is going to end up in the bilge and then it's going to probably get pumped over. You just don't want to deal with some disgusting. You want to be able to mop all that stuff up, throw it in some sort of garbage bag, seal it off, and and take care of it when you get back to land. So tons of those oil blankets. They're like 25 cents. Uh, moving on. Let's see. And we're going to just – I got a lot of stuff, so I'm, I'm trying not to rush, but I also want to make sure I can get all this in in an hour. Uh, for sales and sail repair, I, you know, on my trips, which are really long voyages, I have a sewing machine. I bought a sail right years and years ago, learned how to use it, you know, repairing small boat sails at the bitter end and, and all that sort of stuff. And so I'm, I'm pretty handy with it. It's easy. The, the biggest drawback to having a full on sewing machine is that it's heavy and it's sort of bulky. So you have to have some decent storage spot on the boat but if you've got that and you've got the means they're they're about a thousand bucks but boy you know i built my sail cover i built my dodger i've replaced cushions um made a bimini made a huge sunshade for when i'm at anchor it's it's paid for itself 10 times over and you know you can end up uh, making a little side money here and there if you're good at it with doing small sail repairs for friends and marinas and, and all that sort of stuff. So if you have a sewing machine, you can do all the repairs you need on all your sails and you're good. I 
one time was sailing into Dominica, just a, a quick like four day trip from the BVI. And about six hours out from Dominica, monster big squall came in and I had an old mainsail up and it blew out one of the seams right down the middle. It was probably an eight foot tear. Uh, it wasn't torn, but the, the seam let go and down it came. And within an hour, it was back up completely fixed, no problem at all. And it was all just because of that sewing machine. Had I not had that, you know, I could have hand sewed it, but it would have taken forever and it probably wouldn't have lasted quite as long because I'm not, I'm not very good at hand sewing. But on that note, if you, if you don't want to go the full on machine route, you know, just a palm and some thread and some of those big needles, a bunch of those big needles, cause you break them a lot. But, um, that is sufficient. If you've got the time on your hand, you can just hand sew anything and everything. And it, it definitely, you want to be able to, to repair your sails. They're going to tear and, and you want to be able to do it on the small scale. There are times where I'll hand sew if there's like a little one inch part of a seam that's coming apart and I notice it, then I'll take the sail down and I'll attack it. That way it's small and it doesn't spread. I've also looked and seen a six inch seam let go. And while watching it, considering should I take it down, it then turned into like a three foot and then I took the sail down. And I, like I said, I, I learned my lessons the hard way. But that and you know basically you know all your sail tape and if you're gonna do you know i probably have five or six rolls of sail tape and i always make sure i have acetone uh, as well because any any sail repairs you do with tape you're always going to want to clean it with acetone make sure it completely dries and then that stuff just sticks and stays you try and put some of that tape on a salty sail and it's just going to come off in two seconds so that's typically what I have for sail repairs. And like I said, it, it really, the sewing machine pays for itself, especially if you've got old sails like I do. It, it's incredible how, how many trips to a sail maker it would take to, to keep my sails going. And I can just do it all myself. So that one's a big one. As far as navigation stuff. Now, I am sort of from the old school. And I still enjoy doing daily sites with a sextant. I actually wouldn't go out to sea, go offshore at least, uh, without a sextant and the current nautical almanac, because that's, that's all you need to be able to do sort of the shorthand version of uh, a noon Latin long site. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that that's just because I have seen all my systems fail and I know it does happen. You know, on my boat, I have an old GPS plotter from the nineties and then I've got my iPhone. That's number two GPS. The AIS also has a GPS feed. Uh, so that's number three. And then typically I have an iPad. So that's number four. And then I always have just one of those old handheld Garmin GPSs. So that's five. So I have five GPSs on my boat. And <laughs> the thought of losing every single one of those and six, I mean, the, the Garmin inReach, that's got GPS. So there's six. So there's a lot of them. Um, still, I want to have that sextant. I like having it out there. And one, it, it sort of fills my day. It's kind of fun. I get this, I get this small bit of, I don't know. I just like it. I like being able to plot my position down and see that I'm only a couple miles out from my actual position. I think it's just so cool. And 
again, you know, after after going through a storm and watching so many systems fall off and break within a day, it it is pretty incredible. And you know, you lose your power source. Uh, like if you get your batteries get fried or something like that happens, then all of a sudden. The only things you can charge, if you can't charge anything, then then you are back to the 1970s again, and you got to use that sextant. So it's easy. Um, I'll have to find the book that I use as a recommendation for quick and easy. I think it's like the one day, one day celestial navigation guide, something like that. I don't know. I'll I'll try and find that maybe for the the next podcast once I get back to the boat. Charts always have paper charts. Even if um, even if I'm just going down to the Caribbean, I love marking on the chart. It's great. Even if you just do it once or twice a day, there's something so sailory about it. And I've I've always really enjoyed, you know, ch- chart plotting and all that sort of stuff. It again, it, it's it's a safety issue because again, if you lose all that electronics, then you're sort of thinking, well, where the heck am I? But if you have it charted on a, if you have your position plotted on a chart, I typically do it four times a day on a long voyage, and um, I guess twice a day on the, or once a day on the super long voyages, just because I'm using big passage planning sort of ocean charts on those. But it is, you know, it's 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 something that I think is worth doing. It's fun. It also you know, when you look at it, you can see your progress. I don't know. I, I really enjoy it. And I think, again, just as a backup, it's it's really, really good. Uh, Navionics are fantastic. You can get that for like a tablet or something. And, you know, they have GPS in them. So it just shows your position. I really, really like it. When I'm sailing into Beaufort, South Carolina, the marina is about 25 miles up the river. And there's sandbars and tons of buoys and traffic and all that and I've gone in there in the middle of the night it's wonderful to have this little screen that's just nailed you down exactly where you are and you can just watch it and follow your way up I still because I learned how to do all the navigation back in the day over in England I still make my little drawing and mark out you know all the the little buoys and stuff that I'll see and I have that in my pocket just in case something goes wrong with the electricity but um you know, it's, those things are just wonderful. I absolutely recommend them. They, they, they are great. You just don't want to depend on them, especially when it comes to long voyages, because all those electronics, they, they have a tendency to just slowly start to fade away (laughs) in that salt environment. Uh, Clothes. So with clothing, you know, I first, I'm really, I'm all about layering. I love having tons and tons of thermals and a couple extra, you know, layers of, of wet weather gear, stuff like that. I learned mostly about that on the Appalachian Trail when you're, you know, going from mountaintops down to valleys and you can easily peel off one layer, two layer, add one layer, two layer, and and still be comfortable because that's sort of the name of the game, especially on a boat. You, in that wet environment, you, even if you're damp, you still want to be warm. There's nothing more miserable than being on a boat having to sit in the cockpit and you're soaking wet and you're cold. But if you have a bunch of different thermals, yeah, it's great. So I typically have, you know, 10 pairs of, of like long underwear bottoms, and then I'll have another 10 pair of tops and you can get inexpensive ones 
from like Hanes or you can get fancy Patagonia. It depends on your, your budget and stuff, but I'll have those, maybe a couple poof jackets if I'm going in and it's really going to be cold. And then with wet weather gear, I typically have one nice pair. And by that, I mean like Henry Lloyd, Musto, that sort of stuff. And then I'll have a second pair, which is, you know, cheaper stuff you would just find for maybe like working on a lobster boat, totally waterproof, but it'll, it'll just help you out. Cause I, you know, on a lot of those trips, I'll actually wear two pair of, of, um, foul weather pants and then just choose what jacket is going to be a little less, uh, wet at the time. You know, when I rounded Cape Horn, the fancy jacket that I had, had, uh, already started to delaminate and it, it didn't, it didn't keep the water out at all. And I rounded, uh, the horn in a 1980s Atlantis raincoat basically and it, it didn't keep out the water much better because it was so old but you know having the option i would switch back and forth to whichever one was less damp so you know having having two pair of those is good and um i think it's i think it's well worth it for sure uh lots of winter stuff especially you know you you, you have to gauge where you're going obviously but even you know if I left from Charleston, South Carolina in December to go down, you know, to the Caribbean, I'm still going to have some pretty cold nights, uh, until I get past the Gulf stream. And if I get a big northerly blow, it's going to be cold as well. So you always want to have, be prepared. And I, I always say just to over-prepare for it because a winter hat and gloves and, and sweaters and things like that, you know, they'll just sit in that, that cupboard and they're not going to do anybody any, any harm. And if you need them, you're really going to, be glad you have them. So I, I'll typically have a neck warmer, uh, a winter ski hat. I always take goggles with me in case of hailstorms and things like that. And it, you know, in driving rain in a, a big squall, a pair of goggles are great. You throw those on, you keep your eyes open. You can look at whatever you're doing. You can look into the wind. Um, it really is nice. I I love having those. I I they came in handy for me, especially deep, deep in the Southern Ocean when, when all the squalls are actually hail and snow. But yeah, I mean, you know, clothes, it's really just have, have enough to be able to switch stuff out in the, in the tropics. I typically just sail in a pair of boxers. That's it. I don't really do the naked sailing. One time I, I, you know, I did way back in the day. And I, I remember leaning over to, I was doing something to the rudder, to Mongo, the wind vane and and boy, one of the control lines that's always moving, it rubbed me the wrong way. Let's just say that. And I will never do the naked sailing thing again. <laughs> but I typically, top tip, I will have literally 40 pairs of boxers on board, especially if I'm in the tropics. Because you can go, you they can get all salty, and then you can just change it out. Salty, change that. You can change your boxers three times if you want, just to keep your bunk nice and salt-free. The other thing when you know when the weather's really cold and you're out there for a long time you you may not change all your thermals but if you can strip down and just change your boxers it's amazing how much of a change that'll give you when you're not showering for weeks at a time and stuff i know it's sort of gruesome to think of but it it makes a difference you know you just do a quick little Strip down, change the boxers, put everything else that you've been wearing for two weeks back on. And for some reason, it almost feels like a, a shower. <laughs> Believe it or not. Uh, so that's clothes. 
Let's go into safety gear. Now, safety gear, there's all sorts of Coast Guard recommendations on this stuff. Um, So if you really want to know what they recommend, which I recommend you always are up to date on their their current recommendations, uh, you can find that all online. But as far as the safety gear that I take on Mighty Sparrow, now again, I'm a solo sailor, so I'm not... There's nobody else there, so things like having a throw a throwable life ring, there's no reason to have that because it's just going to either tangle up in something or bang against things or just get in the way. Who knows? There's no reason to have one except for when you're pulling into port so that if you do get pulled over by the Coast Guard, then they won't give you a fine. But uh, from, a, from a safety standpoint, what I typically do, I'll have... An EPIRB, obviously, that's updated and uh, registered to my boat. Test the battery on that. I have a grab bag. And in the grab bag, I typically keep things like the first aid kit, um, sunscreen, toothpaste, anything that I would think that I would want to have if for whatever reason I got stuck in my life raft. I throw in that grab bag, easy access, um, and... You know, the flares and and sound signals and smoke signals, all that sort of stuff. I typically have a few, like three parachute flares, like six red flares, a few white flares, uh, a smoke signal, you know, that sort of stuff. I try and adhere to the Coast Guard uh, list as far as that goes. But I also have, you know, some expired stuff on there that's only a few years out of date. But I figure it probably still works. I'm not counting on it, but... There's no reason to just toss it right out if you've got the room. Um, with the life raft, I have a six person on my boat, and even though it's just me, I sort of figured bigger is better. Every once in a while, somebody else will be on the boat for a delivery, so you know I I have to replace it, and I think I might actually shift down to a four man, just because this thing weighs like 95 pounds. If I normally will stow it. A midship right on the deck it's all lashed down and everything and but if i have really severe weather coming in you know like a full gale or anything like that i'll move it back to the cockpit and lash it back there um i i know that uh, a big enough wave hitting that deck hitting that surface will will rip it right off the boat and that's sort of the last thing i want but in the cockpit you know it takes up a little bit of room but if it's in the footwell then it's not going anywhere. Plus, if I actually do have to deploy it in really crummy conditions, I'm going to want to be able to do all that sort of stuff from the cockpit and not up on the uh, on the deck. So that's sort of my MO with that. Um, I always have, you know, jack lines and, and a safety harness with the, my life vest and stuff. Again, as a solo sailor, I'm, I'm, I really don't use that stuff very much, but it's always good to have on there. You never know when conditions are really going to need it. Um, you know, hooking in. I, the one thing I will always say is, is just because you're hooked in doesn't mean you're safe. Safety really is in you paying attention to what you're doing, making the right choice of what you're about to do. You know, if you don't need to go up on the foredeck, then don't go up there because you're clipped in and you feel safe you know, that's the sort of stuff that gets people in trouble is that, that false sense of security. Now, if you're sailing with more than one person, 
having having everybody you know clip in and stuff is really pretty safe because you've got somebody else that can actually pull you back up on on the boat and everything and it does it does make a, a lot of sense in that situation but again we're, we're coming from a solo sailor's perspective here <clears throat> um i guess the one of the last ones is entertainment and what what you bring to keep your brain <laughs> keep your brain going and uh obviously gonna have a lot of books on board i love reading out there um, I was given an old Kindle a long time ago that it was stocked up with like 250 books or something. So I always have that as sort of a backup. But I like to, you know, have the actual paperback books and, and some of the old sailing stories and storm stories. Believe it or not, I, I will still, I'll go out and read The Perfect Storm while I'm out there. <laughs> For some reason, I it doesn't freak me out, but I, I just love some of those old books. But uh, I also, one of the things I found when I did a trip from uh, Buford up to Maine, I took an old AT buddy of mine, Bo Jangles, and he brought along one of those guidebooks, like reference books for whales and birds and things like that. It was so much fun because every single time we saw any dolphins or any different types of birds, we could then go into the reference and try and figure out which one it was. You can see where they normally live, what they're doing, and and it's sort of this really interactive. It's like an interactive nature show, and you sort of marking down what he had seen and and all that, and especially with the whales. Once we got up near Cape Cod, so that was really cool. And I've never had that on the boat before, so that was that was sort of a new experience. Uh, so those those whale and fish guides and bird guides are really cool. Star charts also. I've never had a huge amount of success with actual star chart books, but for some of the apps that they have for iPhones and tablets and stuff, um, they're absolutely amazing. And they get a little wonky on the boat just because the boat's moving, so some of their compasses get a little messed up. But if you want to be able to identify all sorts of constellations and all that sort of stuff, it's fantastic and you will you know the night sky out in the ocean there's just nothing better and when it's clear and it's crisp holy cow you're going to be able to see everything in the shooting stars but to be able to start identifying it it's it's really cool and you know i used to i used to always tell people because i i started doing guided sort of stargazing tours down in the in the virgin islands and i remember i had to study a lot practice a lot and to the point where sort of I, I could tell you which stars are which and and how far away they are and how big they are all that sort of stuff and the only thing that I remember thinking at one point the only drawback was that I could no longer just look up at the sky as a total mystery and wonder you know what some of those things were and that was gone because I knew what they were and I knew what all the constellations were and all that and so as long as you don't mind losing that bit of mystery, I definitely recommend having some sort of uh, stargazing guide, and and I would recommend them on the the iPads and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I guess those are sort of my big big things. You know, for for spare parts, you can't take a whole nother boat right along with you. You're never going to be able to have a spare for absolutely everything. So you sort of have to pick and choose. 
before you go out on any big voyage, you're always going to go over the boat as best you can, looking for any any weak spots or any small things that may end up becoming a problem. And depending on your situation and your budget, if there's little things like stainless steel plates or screws or shackles or blocks, if you can afford it, then grab a couple extra. You never know when one's going to let go. You don't have to have, like I said, one for every single thing on the boat because, you know, on land you may think, oh, well, the only way I can fix this is if I go to the marine store. Out at sea, you're going to be amazed at the solutions that you can come up with when that's the only way you can do it. You may not have the correct parts, but you're going to be able to make something else work. Um, That definitely comes into play and it came into play on a lot of my trips where you know I just had to figure out other ways to make a new spare part for that that thing that I needed and so you know given enough time on your hands and a bit of a creative mind and you'll you'll be able to fix just about anything uh which brings me to tools I typically have a, a one of those you know sets of of cordless power tools you do want to make sure you got a way to charge them for sure um i know my inverter one of my first inverters that i had for whatever reason wouldn't charge i don't know if it just didn't have the power to do it i i assume that was the problem but i i test that now and and the inverter that i have now i i can actually charge all the stuff so you know things like a cordless screw Screw gun, sawzall, um, all that sort of stuff. You know, one of those like four or five packed sort of things. <clears throat> and I always have a couple extra batteries. Main thing is you just want to make sure you charge them before you leave. And that way you're starting with the full charge. Um, I would say, you know, a decent amount of tools. Things like the big bolt cutters. That's something I've, I've you know, I'd like to actually toy with that. For, you know, worst case scenario, you end up losing, the rig comes down, you've got to free it up from the boat as fast as possible. I have never tested out what is going to be the easiest way to cut through all these big uh, shrouds and, and stays and stuff on the boat. I do have a big old pair of bolt cutters, but I kind of have a feeling that they, I don't know if they would work. I'm going to have to test this out. But I typically have that. Obviously, I have a hacksaw, and then the sawzaw has metal blades on it. So those are three different ways I could I could cut into something. Again, it's going to depend on the situation you're in. If there's huge breaking waves, and you know power tools are going to be out of the out of the equation, you might just have to go up and cut everything free. So I don't know. Those those are definitely needed. And then just regular hand tools. I always have a, a tool bag with just regular screwdrivers, wrenches, all that sort of stuff always have that on board because you want to be able to fix anything and everything you can when you're out there uh, without without having to worry about it. So I've, I've done one delivery so stupid where we really didn't have any tools on board. It was the dumbest, dumbest excursion I've ever been on in my life. And, you know, things were coming apart in the boat when we went through rough weather. It was some crummy old little catamaran and, you know, Oh, there were like ceiling panels and things coming apart. We didn't even have a screwdriver to deal with them. And when stuff broke down on the boat, it was just like, well, there goes another thing. There goes another thing. And it was a very helpless feeling. So always having a pretty good selection of tools, uh, that that's going to help and, and 
make you feel a whole lot more comfortable when you're <laughs> when you're out on that boat. Uh, let's see what else. I don't really, you know, as far as other big issues, there's not a whole lot really. I mean, I have a little desalinization pump, just a hand pump I take. Um, I that's the one thing that I don't know. It's it's kind of weird. So to get one of the full systems is pretty expensive. It takes a lot of electricity, and the hand pump. It works great. I did have one break on me, and that wasn't great by any means. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of a strange thing, you know. The hand pumps produce like one gallon per hour, so it's tedious. I mean, if when I ran out of water on this last trip, or or when I got down to, I think I had a five-gallon jug of water from Maine that I never touched until the last few days of the trip. <clears throat> Excuse me, and when I started getting pretty low, that's when I would, I, every day I knew I was going to do three hours of pumping. And while it's not the worst thing in the world, it's also not the best. And it would have been nice to have just hit a button and have as much fresh water as, as I want. So I don't know, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like if I did another big, big trip, I would probably invest in some sort of water maker, some electrical one, but you know, again, that, that depends on your situation and your budget. The handheld ones, though, I don't think I'd want to go out to sea without one. Just because you never know. I uh, My biggest worry is that one of the tanks, you know, has a crack in it or something like that. And then you go to get some water and there's nothing left. And all of a sudden, you don't have any. And I do, typically, I will take um, my my two main tanks hold 75 gallons or 70 gallons and then i typically have these five gallon jerry cans where i'll have four of those so i've got an extra 20 i like to have about 100 gallons whenever i go out and sometimes just it's the bottom layer in my my refrigerator is is like 10 one gallon you know little cartons of of water so I don't know. It's kind of one of those things because I always try and catch as much rain as I can. But there are certain places in the world where you can't do that. You know, off the African coast with all the Sahara dust, you can catch the water. You can drink it immediately. If it sits for more than 24 hours, you start to see this grayness that that starts building up and it tastes bad. It smells funny and it's basically poisonous at that point. And you got to watch out for that sort of stuff. So you never know if the water, and I've been in situations where it doesn't rain for like a month out there on the ocean. <laughs> so you can't count on it at all, but I still like to do it. It is pretty fun. And if you do get good, clean, fresh water, rainwater, there's nothing better for making tea and coffee and stuff. So I, I definitely always, always do that, but I always have the hand pump and would, would think about investing in an actual water maker at some point in the future for another big trip uh to do i guess with electricity that's that's definitely worth talking about so on sparrow obviously the main power plant would be the engine um if i needed to do a big heavy duty charge but i i have i have two solar panels one's i think about 100 watt and the other one's i think a 150 something like that and those go right to my batteries i have four 12 volt batteries and then one extra for the engine. So that's my house bank and my engine bank. And 
those, as long as the sun's out, those are going to get to a point where the batteries are fully topped off by one, two o'clock in the afternoon. And so they're getting their full charge. I typically don't have to run the engine unless it's been super foggy and cloudy and I'm cranking that, that refrigerator all day. So that's sort of my initial, you know, got the power plant of the engine and then I've got the solar. What I use as my backup is one of those small little lithium ion power packs and it has an inverter it has two little slots for USB charging, and I think it has a 12-volt, like, old cigarette lighter sort of power source on it as well. And that comes with a small uh, foldable solar panel. And I think to charge it from pretty much depleted, so dead battery, to charge it all the way up would probably take two days, um, if not more, of really good direct sun. But if you charge it up when you leave and you're using it as your backup, if you're on a month-long trip, you've got that backup. And that would allow me, the one that I have, would allow me to charge my computer, I think, twice or charge a phone maybe 10 times. So that's a lot as an emergency backup. And to be able to recharge that, so say for whatever reason, the solar panels, which are a little bit old now, fizzle out and uh, something goes wrong with my engine and I can't charge the battery that way, I can still then charge what I deem as sort of my most crucial things, which would be the sat phone, the computer. Um, And I don't know, I'll have to look and see, but I think some of those, some of those uh, little backup power packs are actually have the 12 volt, which maybe that little cigarette lighter thing is. So you could rig up, I suppose, your AIS to it. That would be something I would have to toy with. But your VHF, your computers, and your sat phone, so you could do your weather and you could communicate with another ship. That would be pretty pretty big on the list as far as, uh, as uh, an emergency backup. So have those. Other than that, that's typically just about it. You know, that way I'm out there, I'm feeling pretty secure. I feel like I could stay out there for a long time, depending on how much food I bring and good to go. You know, Um, I do, I will say that to protect all of the crucial electronics, like the computer and the sat phone and uh, that sort of stuff, I keep that, I have like a suitcase size Pelican case. So totally waterproof. I can fit all that stuff in it. It lives in there just in case. And the only time I, if I'm going to use it, that's the only time it comes out. And typically what I'll do is if I have one computer that is solely for downloading the weather, the other one, yeah, if I want to watch a movie or something like that, I, I can do it and, and not have to worry too much about it. So always want to make sure that stuff is super duper safe. I have heard, and don't quote me on this, but if you get into a severe lightning storm, if you have things like a sat phone, go ahead and put them in the oven. And if you get a lightning strike, you're better off that way, I guess. I don't know. I've never, I've never heard anybody tell me that and say it happened to me and it worked. I've only heard that they think it works or they heard from somebody else that it works. So I don't know. But 
as far as prepping for a trip, that's the sort of stuff that I I take into account. Hopefully that wasn't too all over the place. You know, if I'm going on a long trip, obviously the boat is going to start out of the water so that I can inspect any through hulls and look for any uh, any weak points, cracks, things like that in the hull. Paint the bottom up a couple of times with the old anti-fouling and then splasher and get going. But Oh, I guess, well, with, with the sail plan, let's just, we'll end on that one. So as far as the sail plan that, that Sparrow typically carries on a long-distance voyage, I'll have two main sails, one typically a lot more heavy weather than the other, and I like to make sure that the heavy weather mainsail has a third reef, a deep, deep reef where if it gets really, really bad out there, I can still get down to my third reef mainsail for going hove to or something like that. So two mainsails and make sure that one has a, a third reef in it. And on, on Sparrow, that's tiny. Like literally that, that mainsail with a third reef is, is probably the equivalent of like a laser sail. So super small. As far as, now she's a cutter rig, so I have a staysail and I have a headsail. So with the staysail, I typically have two of those, and then I'll also have two different storm jibs, one that's a little lighter material and another that's really heavy duty. They're typically both the same size, but the heavy duty one is the one that I'll use if I'm running in a really, really windy storm, then I sheet that one right into the middle and it's I'm bare poles. It's just to keep the bow headed downwind and with the waves. The other one, the easier one to handle, I'll typically use that if I'm either fore reaching in a heavy in heavy weather or if I'm going hove to, just because it's a little easier to use. And you know, if that one that one can handle winds up into the 50s, no problem. The other one, I'm sure, could handle winds up into the 70s without shredding to pieces. It's it's the heaviest duty sail I definitely have on the boat. So two storm jibs. And then with headsails, I have everything from small working jibs all the way up to, you know, what you would consider a code zero. Um, you know, on the old school boats, it's called a drifter, but basically super light, almost spinnaker material, huge overlapping um, jenny and great for super light winds. And then I typically, well, I used to have a asymmetrical and a symmetrical spinnaker as well. Barely used those, but when I did need them in super calm conditions, when the wind was coming from aft, then they were a godsend because I could still do two or three knots, excuse me, instead of just floating there. So those, those helped out a lot. Unfortunately, I shredded all of those um, <laughs> over the years of of sort of dancing with the squalls and stuff like that. You know, the worst one was I had this beautiful red, white, and blue drifter, super old, must have been probably 180% jib. I mean, and it was super light, maybe 0.5 ounce um, material. And I was in the doldrums, sleeping away through the night. There were squalls all around and stuff, but nothing was really moving. We were just ghosting along, and just as sort of the half light was coming up, I just, the boat just lurched over without any warning at all and just pop. And the whole thing just is shredded. By the time I was looking at it, it, it was basically confetti. And it was one of my favorite sails. 
I felt so bad about that, but you know, in those in those situations, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna gain miles by just drifting through the night. And if you can't, if you have two knots of breeze and you can use it, you have to. So, dancing with the devil, and I got spanked on that one. But you know, it happens. It absolutely happens. So those are sort of the sails that I have. I do have an old spinnaker pole that I sort of modified so that I can pull out the staysail. And then I can extend it to be able to pull out a small jib. And that really does come in handy, especially when you're running straight downwind. uh, Or you're just sort of in a lumpier sea and it helps keep things from collapsing and such. You know, there's nothing worse. That jarring motion when, when the boat is rolling and the winds are light and you've got your sail collapsing and then it fills... And it's just wham, wham. That I, I don't do that. I don't let that happen to the boat. I've always felt that, that that's going to break things faster than almost anything. So uh, I typically like to pull something out. If that doesn't work, then I take it all down. But yeah, other than that, I can't think too much. You know, um, that's pretty much it, really. I would say that's my two cents. Uh, you know, if you have questions, I don't know how you'd comment on this, this podcast. I got to like look at how that that works and stuff but you know there's some youtube videos and things like that uh i'm hopefully going to start posting some more of that stuff as well but yeah that's that's pretty much it as far as preparing for an ocean voyage those are some of the main things that i look at and obviously every boat is different it's all going to have different different needs and stuff um depending on your situation for me it's definitely sailing on a very tight budget and trying to be as safe as possible and make it back alive. That's that's my big goals. And I will say that what makes a lot of that stuff possible and also keeps me from pulling the last of my hair out of my head is, is keeping this boat as simple as possible. The more complicated a system is, the more chance it's going to have to break down out at sea. It's going to cost you more money. And you want to keep things bare bones. You know, when you're out there on the ocean, at least me, I want to be reading a book or listening to some music or anything like that. You know, I, I'm, I'm not in it to test out the most technologically advanced gadgets uh, on board. You know, I don't, I don't really, I don't go out there for that. So I find there's, there's quite a lot of splendor in, in being simple out there. And it just makes the boat work a lot better rather than having things constantly breaking down or not working the correct way and then just being frustrated with having to deal with it. So keep it simple, keep it safe, and uh, that's about it, guys. Thanks for listening, and hopefully we'll have a few more interviews coming up. Hopefully I'll be able to pin my dad down because that would be a great story. Talk about the initial sale of the Mighty Sparrow from Jupiter, Florida down to the BVI. We had a lot of problems on that trip. This is pretty funny. And other than that, we're going to hopefully have some more stuff coming down the pipeline. And if you want more information about the trip, like I always say, there is the book Sailing into Oblivion available on Amazon. And with a little bit of luck, I've submitted it for as a audiobook. I don't know how long it's going to take, but uh, fingers crossed that that sucker will be coming out within the new year, and then you can listen to the story. So everybody out there, thanks for listening. Sail safe. <laughs>